We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors for supporting our programs. Here's a quick message. Last year, nearly 40% of Americans delayed or skipped medical care due to costs. TaylorMed offers a comprehensive solution. The nation's largest network of patients, providers, pharmacies, life science companies, and other partners dedicated to improving healthcare affordability anywhere a prescription is written or dispensed. TaylorMed's innovative product suite empowers network constituents to improve patient experience and outcomes while boosting their own financial health. Its best-in-class platform proactively identifies patients in need and automates enrollment in cost-saving resources, spanning more than 60,000 assistance programs and over 1,000 chronic conditions. By matching patients with the right resources at the right time, TaylorMed enables pharmacies and providers to reduce prescription abandonment, boost adherence, and increase revenue. To learn more, head to www.taylormed.co. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy Podcast Network's coverage of access to pharmacy, the AXS 2023. This is exciting to be part of the Assembia's communications team and press coverage. It was a, a wonderful time. Thank you so much for your help. My producer, Brady Yuri. we had a great time. Brady, what was your favorite part of this event? Hey, Todd, it was great being a part of the Assembia Post Show. I think my favorite part was definitely the dance competitions we were having. I was seeing some great moves out there. A shout out to Cerulic with the spin. It was definitely my favorite dance move. We didn't get any bottle service, but you know what? We can get that next year, hopefully, if they get the whole cabana thing figured out. But I think it was a great show. We had some interviews with some great leaders and innovators in pharmacy. Shirlik Dvorsky, he is the CEO of TaylorMed. Thank you, TaylorMed, for your sponsorship of the coverage of AXS 2023. Joseph Alexander, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Capital RX. We're going to be talking with Lali Haverin, Dr. Haverin, over at Walgreens Specialty, focusing on fertility and oncology. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network's coverage of Assembia 2023. We'll see you next year. Access 2024. Assembia 2023, here we are. We have been interviewing innovators in specialty pharmacy care all week long. Uh, today is an amazing day because we get to... Um, we get to interview a returning guest to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Um, and I need to understand more about this organization, Shrillik. So it's Shrillik Dvorsky, CEO of TaylorMed. Welcome to Las Vegas and being here with us in our cabana 305 here at Assembia 2023. That's great to be back, Todd, and uh, this time in person. So uh, even better. And I love the lights. Like we have a podcast party going on here. That's right. Nobody can see it. If you follow us on Instagram at Pharmacy Podcast, you'll be able to um, get a little bit of what the vibe's going on. But we definitely like um, to be upbeat when we're in an industry that, if you think about it, we're saving people's lives. And sometimes there's some mental health stress to losing patients or having people around you. So when we come to events like this, we just kind of want to celebrate each other in the profession 
and um, let our hair down and, and have fun. So that that's what we're going to do. I'm going to jump into some serious questions, but then you're required to dance, uh, Cyrillic, after, after this interview. I surprise you. I have some moves. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Awesome. So I want to understand, first of all, if you didn't hear This Week in Pharmacy with Cyrillic and his, um, his team and his partner, I want you to kind of bring us up, give us a summary of what TaylorMed's mission is. Sure. So mission is moving mountains for patients. Uh, founded the company after being a caregiver of uh, several family members of mine uh, who were diagnosed with cancer. And I've seen the hardships associated to care delivery uh, firsthand, unfortunately. Um, and that's why, you know, we started this, Adam and I, like five and a half years ago. Uh, we decided to focus all of our energy on removing financial barriers to care. Uh, and when you think about uh, what you just said about the stress associated to working in the industry, uh, when I started in the industry after being a decade in the Medicaid device industry before, I was exposed to a term called financial toxicity. Hmm. And when you think about the fact that we have a side effect that was given a name, financial toxicity, that is associated with the fact that patients cannot afford their care and what are the downstream implications for them and their families, um, that's core to our mission. Um, what we do is we have built a pretty sizable network over the last five years, bringing together patients, providers, pharmacies, and life sciences companies who are all using our solutions to try to find patients that have a financial gap uh, or a financial barrier to care and try to solve for it, solve for it um, at scale. Um, so that's us in a nutshell. There is so much on the news that the public is berated and, under, and, and frustrated as consumers that we spend so much billions and billions of dollars in, in health care spend, but they feel like they don't get their money's worth. They're like, where's all my tax money going? Where's, where's all this money going? Why am I not be able to, to care for myself in the way that I need to, to have that care? So the medication affordability is so important. And you and your team have shared statistics that we know that pa uh, patients just aren't able to afford um, medications, uh, the, the prescription abandonment that comes from that, uh, medication non-adherence, which now costs more money in the long run because now patients are sliding back into um, skilled nursing or sliding back into the hospital. So what what do you think is necessary to accelerate the messaging of what TaylorMed is doing? How do we get more information? And obviously, this podcast, we're going to keep talking with TaylorMed's team, as well as we'd like to talk to some of your partners. We'd like to actually have some of your specialty pharmacies and um, pharmacists come on. But what can we do to empower you better? How, do, how does the industry embrace TaylorMed and insert you into what facets of the, of the ecosystem? Where do you belong, is what I'm saying. So I think two answers to, to maybe two questions you just asked. Where do we belong? We're, we belong everywhere a prescription is written or dispensed, and there is a financial barrier to care. Um, I think um, in a couple of hours, I'll be giving my presentation here in Assembia, uh, in and we're not going to talk about tailorment, and we're not going to talk about what we do. But we're actually going to share some of the um, you know, insights that we are seeing across our network of how organizations are trying to tackle affordability, financial barriers to care, and where do they fail? Because I have to say, I've been so passionate about this field, and I founded a company. I've moved the country. 
from Israel to the United States for that. But I haven't seen enough movement in the way organizations are thinking about scaling that program that they're establishing that moves the needle enough. Uh, and I think that we are seeing a few kind of core reasons for that. One, um, usually when like a pharmacy or even like a health system thinks about where do I need to find patients and that have like financial needs, they are really narrow in their scope and their thinking. And they think about oncology, mm-hmm. which obviously is a very high cost, high prevalent condition. But what about all of the other specialties that patients are struggling with, whether it's like Crohn's disease or yeah. rheumatology, or even if it's like a cardiovascular patient that has an anticoagulation drug, like they think really narrowly. And I think that, you know, going back to your question, if we can help through this platform, educate innovators and leaders in pharmacies and health systems that they need to think broadly about the scope, that's one thing. The second thing, um, everybody wants to help patients. However, I don't know of a single constituents in our network that doesn't. However, it's very hard to do that if it doesn't also benefit your organization financially. So when you think about these programs, you have to make sure that there is an aligned incentive or a business driver to investing in patient financial assistance or affordability. Um, and we have to use your platform here in the, the podcast to educate leaders why it matters so much. It is definitely the downstream implications of what happens in non-adherence. But think about a pharmacy that is seeing reduction of their fill rate because patients are unable to afford their treatment. They need to think about that when they are deciding to invest in a team or even a technology or both to do that. And if I'm a health system, my patients are expected to pay out of pocket. I cannot collect that. I'm now having write-offs and bad debt. And you have to think about that when you are measuring the success of your program. So one is expand the scope, two, align business driver, and three, in order to scale, you need people mm-hmm. that are experienced, you need processes, because you don't want it like a central decentralized process where one team is doing something on the pharmacy side, another uh, completely different process on the you know uh, service line side in, in the cancer center, and then Unfortunately, you have to invest in technology to scale yeah. because otherwise you are dependent on you know your team just owning the entire uh, process without any kind of foundational support that can help them. So um, it's not about us. It's really about educating the field about how they need to form their programs to succeed. Yeah, the the specialty pharmacists and even our community pharmacists, long-term care. I, I guess a multitude of them, now that I'm thinking about what you're saying, when they're listening to you, they're like, that's my patient. Like they know there are stories where their patient has sh- hasn't shown back up for a refill or they try to engage and they're not getting any response because now the patient uh, refers to that entity, that pharmacy and that pharmacist as a, um, as a barrier a financial barrier, really, and they fall off treatment. When I think of the education that we're bringing through the Pharmacy Podcast Network, which we're so excited to be part of this, I need I want to continue to encourage feedback from our listeners to reach out to the TaylorMed organization and give your own testimonial about how they believe the insertion of what they know about a specific condition, transition, opioid addiction, Um, fertility, whatever it is that these people are going through to insert some of those stories into the TaylorMed 
a library of data per se. Number two that I'm excited about when I'm listening to you is education to our policymakers in state governments that are running Medicaid dollars and Medicare Part D dollars and and not knowing how to fill the donut hole where they're not getting the coverage that they need. TaylorMed could become a powerful ally to state organizations. Have you told the story to some of your state organizations about what, what you're out there doing? We are, and we are also involved with a lot of the advocacy groups uh, that are kind of, you know, going through the hill and trying to, like, change legislation in order to support patients. Because what's happening is, a lot of time, when you think about the powers in this industry, you have pharmacies, you have pharma, you have payers, and not always incentives align. Um, There is one party that always suffers, and that's the patient. Because when there is tension between, let's say, a manufacturer that is trying to provide copy assistance and a payer that thinks about, do I want to count out towards my patient's out-of-pocket accumulator or not, um, that's a valid debate to have. I'm, you know, It's not my position to take a stand here. But when I'm seeing the patients who are now, as a result of that, getting less support and having more debt and less uh, adherence, I think there is room for state government, federal government to also take a stand and say, this is the way we want to support patients. And we obviously need to take into consideration everybody's interests. But patience for us is kind of the goal. How do we make them, you know, not kind of be caught in between all of these big forces that they cannot control? And I'll give you an example. I was talking to someone yesterday. Um, you know, assembly is a very busy conference. Yeah. Uh, you end up completely exhausted at 5 p.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was hoping for like uh, like a nice dinner uh, with the team. I got a call from a founder of a company, um, a CEO, and one of their children is now diagnosed with a very um, severe form of like uh, autoimmune condition, mm-hmm. and their drug is currently not covered by the payer. And they're expected to pay twenty thousand dollars a month. Oh my gosh! So that's not a underinsured family. It's a family that is making a decent living, and they reach out to us, and I say, "How how can you help us? Because this drug helps my daughter, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna live in a box before I say no to to that drug." But this is where again, you know. You know, you need to fight the appeals with the payers. You need to try and find ways to get compassionate use from pharma. But again, the patient is stuck in between. And if um, state governments can play a role, even like municipal authority can play a role in just creating awareness around the opportunities, um, we are always there to support. We started this from a very personal, mission-driven uh, reason. So the business comes second. Where does TaylorMed fit? the best to accelerate your success so that your success equals patient-driven treatment success. And when I think of, I've spent so much time in the pharmacy industry, I always know the the channels and sectors. So I think of our, I started in long-term care, we focused on seniors. I understand the community environment. I understand the mixed environment where you have community pharmacists that are serving skilled nursing facilities and long-term care and home care. And so when you came to Assembia, this is ultra focus on the world of rare diseases and specialty disease treatment technology um, partners. You're seeing this because I just saw you guys. You guys have a wonderful booth out there and got a picture with you. Um, and it's a big 
there's a lot of hustle and bustle going on down there. Where do you think we could accelerate the mission of where you do? Should it be in the community pharmacy space where we have 19,000 independent community pharmacists plus Walgreens and Rite Aid and all of that? Or is this where you belong? Do you belong in specialty first because of the complexity and the intricacy of specialty drug management? I think our task is pretty difficult because we, we are needed in both areas. Yeah. Um, and specialty is obviously top of mind. The cost of medication is very high. The stakes are very high for the dispensing pharmacy or if like a provider is dispensing the drug uh, and obviously for patients. Uh, and last but not least is pharma. And, and when we're able to solve for getting patient on therapy and making sure their refuse is also taken care of, there is obviously like we prioritize those kind of um, organizations first. But when you start like looking more broadly and you have a patient that doesn't have a special drug, but they have a branded um, drug for their COPD condition or even mm -hmm. diabetes, um, they might find themselves in, you know, not $5,000 out of pocket, but 300 a month. Mm -hmm. A lot of families cannot afford that. Um, and because it's only, quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes for the mm -hmm. podcast yes. listeners, um, only $300, like the risk for the community pharmacy is not that big as like a $5,000 loss for a spatial pharmacy. So they don't have robust processes to support patients in the community. Um, and, and it means that we need to engage there in a different way. So we need to empower patients first. And this is why our new patient experience solution is basically allowing patients to participate in their patient financial journey. And is it empowering them to know that there are options to enroll, to manage a virtual copay wallet that they can then take to their community pharmacy and, um, and then use that. Um, and that's something that I think it will take different shapes and forms and the specialty pharmacy side, which is kind of more back office, heavy services, mm -hmm. more tight processes than thousands of like 10,000 uh, stores that have community retail pharmacies and the bandwidth of a pharmacy tech in the store would never be able to like support every patient's uh, financial needs. So unfortunately, we do need to be serving both. Mm -hmm. Let's just add providers as well, because they also see patients. They are prescribing those drugs. Patients are getting like infused products in their infusion center. Um, but what we did in TaylorMade is that we've built the core platform to be able to then be layered with different types of use, user interfaces. So if I'm patient, if I'm a caregiver, if I'm a provider office, or if, if I'm a specialty pharmacy, mm -hmm. I can be taking advantage of those technology solutions. Have you heard of CPESN? I have not. It's the Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services Network. It's a group of pharmacies um, through the NCPA, the National Community Pharmacists Association, that said, hey, we have to drive more clinical services that don't have anything to do with the actual medication per se. I mean, it does, but it's an extension of care. Right. And they have now empowered other community pharmacies. So the reason why I mention that is a thing that the PPN has done best is built bridges between organizations that empower the, the mission of both organizations because one plus one equals three. And so I'm gonna introduce you to CPESN. Uh, it's ran by a guy named Troy Tragstead, Dr. Tragstead, Troy. And um, 
They started in North Carolina, so it's exciting to see how they've exploded with Moose Pharmacy. And Joe Moose runs a community pharmacy down there that's um, extremely um, innovative in the way that they deliver care. It's not just the home, you know, apothecary style mom and pop pharmacy. And there's nothing wrong with that, but he's really thinking next level of treatment management. And so CPS, CPESN and TaylorMed could really do some some good things together for pockets of communities that are that are that have pharmacy owners that see the need in the insertion to get you involved so i gotta make that recommend that introduction for you that'll be great and thanks for like even thinking about that and for us it's always like trying to figure out like what are they seeing as like problems in the trenches um and how can we potentially support and if not at least like you know encourage them to think about those problems for their patients I'm excited that you are here. I want to just give you and the Taylor Med team a shout out um, for for sponsoring us and helping us be here and get this messaging out. We are so passionate about getting innovative uh, messaging out on organizations and people that are truly transforming pharmacy and um, kind of dismantling the walls of the status quo so that we can get more patients uh, the care that they deserve. So, Srilik, um, I'm so glad that you were here today. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Uh, we are honored to support uh, what you're doing, Todd. I think that getting the word out as you do in scale to so many different listeners uh, who are seeing those challenges and not only, you know, uh, learn about new innovations that are going out there, but also like hear from peers what they can do to make their patients' lives better and their pharmacy run better. Uh, it's just a privilege to be talking to you again. Moving mountains for patients. Let's yeah. do it. I love and it. And now let's move together in the dance And form, now right? it's time to dance. Here we go. All right. Talk to you soon. Hey, we are here in Vegas, Assembia 2023 the leading conference for the business of specialty pharmacy, innovation in specialty pharmacy, a part of specialty pharmacy that people may not understand nor pay enough attention to is the payment processing side, as well as how the PBM, how the pharmacy benefit manager plays into care. And I'm excited to have Joe Alexander. He is the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Capital RX with us today. Here at the Win, uh, welcome to the show, Joe. It's so nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So, Capital RX has been around for about five and a half years. You've become one of the more established tech-based, admin fee, fiduciary kind of driven, focused uh, PBMs. Tell us just a little bit about Capital RX for listeners who might not, not might not remember um, what you're doing in in pharmacy right now. Sure. So we are, as you mentioned, about five and a half years old. We're a pharmacy benefit manager and what we call a pharmacy benefit administrator, which really same processes, right? Think about it as the average self-insured employer is really buying a standardized product that we offer with our standard formulary, our standard national network, et cetera. The PBA side is more of a parts bin for you need clinical services, you need prior authorization, you need network, you need rebates, or maybe you need all of it, right? And then uh, those are really our two core businesses. Um, that we operate in, which again, it's all benefit management, procurement, financial intermediation, et cetera, um, just for different types of customers between self-insured and regional health plans, TPAs, et cetera. So there's a technology advantage that I've heard your team talk about before you built your own enterprise pharmacy platform from the ground up. 
Um, you are launched a new system in early of 2021. It's a tech-driven company. So yeah. why was building this new platform, why was that necessary to the PBM um, ecosystem? Yeah, look, this industry in general, we, we spent tens of billions of dollars in U.S. healthcare on EHR, EMR, et cetera, which is what we often say is how you activate a claim. We've spent very little in PBMs historically because they have a perfect business model, right? And they've chosen to consolidate rather than innovate and make investments in modern infrastructure and really keep up with the complexity of what a benefit's become, which mirrors the complexity of what a drug has become and how care needs to wrap and support that. And so focusing on a lot of the things about the traditional pricing model and what it incentivizes, it isn't tech. The old systems, again, are antiquated, they're racking cabling, they're maybe cloud-based a little bit, but that's it. And people are still plugging into green screens and pressing F7 and waiting through 45-day queues. <laughs> and, you know, again, if you look at that juxtaposed against EHR, EMR, say what you want about the competitive landscape there, but it's been a tens of billions of dollars in investment and it hasn't been made on how to manage and administrate a claim. And so we felt this very early on. We didn't start the company. We started it with our single ledger model, pure transparency, insights, analytics, and great service. And it became clear to us that the infrastructure that supports this is going to be a handicap for us if we can't do it. And fortunately, by being a technology company, in some ways masquerading as a PBM, we knew we could build this type of infrastructure, but we were resistant to it honestly, but it became very apparent very early on that it was both a good business decision and it's what we had to do to scale the type of model that we're deploying. So I met a man named Dom Meff from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, actually Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. God rest his soul. His sons, two sons, are actually in the pharmacy industry in specialty. So the Meff name is synonymous with specialty pharmacy. He taught me back in the 80s when he started a PBM for the steel industry out of Pittsburgh, what a PBM was intended to do. And he said when he passed away about five years ago, and before that, when we were working with him on a pharmacogenomics app, um, that it's just run amok in comparison to what it was and what it started in formulary management, as well as disease state um, funneling of how to process claims and get things paid for. There are state and federal attacks on PBMs on purpose, almost like defensive attacks, mm -hmm. because of money being spent that turns into profits for th the three biggest PBMs. And I think of um, PBM reform and how important that is to um, healthcare reform in general. Capital RX has come, come at the market with a different business model that's not like the three big PBMs. Mm -hmm. So what laws, what new laws, what means, what does it mean for listeners in understanding where PBM reform fits into the mission of Capital RX? What does reform mean to those plan sponsors that you work with? Yeah, look, I think re reform is important just to touch kind of where you started. You know, the PBM industry did start with flat admin fees. Yep. You know, it evolved as they, honestly, they brilliantly dis discovered they could say to the client, it's zero dollars. It's zero admin fee. And obviously that beget the very first spread pricing mechanism that again has evolved in its complexity scope in a million different ways over 30 years. And so the reform's important because, you know, it, it is what most of it's going to do more than anything else is level the playing field, 
mandate reporting and disclosure that will help employers or fiduciaries or whoever they are make better decisions. It's not going to be a silver bullet. It doesn't cure all the problems. It doesn't remove all the disincentives. But if you can eliminate spread and require disclosures that even if they don't outlaw it, prohibit it, but at least make the fiduciary aware of it. Because again, when you price in the way that the model and PBM has evolved back to $0 admin fee, and I just keep a little bit in the middle, well, people are buying on proxies for price at the end of the day, an average annual effective rate off of an AWP reference price for a basket of goods, right? You don't buy anything else like this. <laughs> so a lot of our model is bringing what we call connecting the supply chain. And it just so happens that the technology aspects for the operational efficiency are necessary too. But, um, you know, again, the reform stuff is going to, I think, imperfectly, but far better than what we are today. And we obviously embraced this type of change. It's, it's beneficial to us because we are transparent. We have nothing to hide. And I encourage everybody that doesn't to report that out. You know what I mean? And let, and because again, people buy on fake numbers and people don't understand when price is an illusion, service and all these other things easily become an afterthought or you can't even perceive the value of good versus bad. And that's sort of a sad commoditization of what PBMs do. But the other important thing I always talk about in reform to me is, one, it does bother me when people say PBM shouldn't exist, because that's like saying the public utility water utility shouldn't exist. It's right. infrastructure that gives medications to people all over the country. Um, and so PBMs are very necessary, but it's not the PBMs that people hate. It's the pricing model. Mm -hmm. It's the economic model, and it's the, disin it's the misaligned incentives that it creates for the entire supply chain, especially the way... PBMs have evolved and been able to perfect a business model that allows them to basically consolidate everything. Now, how does this play into specialty rare diseases where we have a lot more sensitivity to get the prescription started, get the patient on the medication, get the uh, patient to stay on the medication and not fall off of treatment based on um, not having the money to even stay on treatment sometimes? How does Capital Rx play into that, um, that ecosystem? Yeah. So we don't own a fulfillment asset. We don't own a specialty pharmacy. And so we work with partners in a vast array, of course, when you're talking about specialty or limited distribution and all the different types of um, provider bases that you need to support those types of patients. And so we, we create a marketplace. Obviously, this is an economies of scale industry still. We're, we're still a smaller player at kind of a... a early stage of scum's level of scale. And so we do work with partners diligently because um, service is a big part of our business model. You know, we focus a lot on the tech, but it's how we wrap that with our processes and how we make investments and resources in the company. Because the traditional PBMs, because of that complex pricing model, they're managing so much um, different price points for different customers, right? The entire business they have is massively administratively complex on the financial side. And so that to me, they're under-resourced in both technology and infrastructure. They're under-resourced in clinical and customer service. And so our model allows us to flip that on its head a little bit. And all of our client managers are pharmacists. And so it's working both with the supply chain. Again, connecting the supply chain is huge because when you don't encumber the price of the drug, um, a lot of the problems that patients often perceive disappear. And people say you can't do these things too. Like I think our prior authorization approval rate is around 68 or 70 percent. 
And people would say, how can you do that and not disrupt or make members mad? But we've got a 71 NPS on the member side and a 96 on the customer side. And so you can drive change, but people don't spend enough time to give patients the right information or care at the end of the day. And that's 90% of it because patients are especially specialty patients, in my opinion, they are pretty flexible. They're engaged in the system at that point, whether they want to be or not. And so they are out there looking for help and asking for help. And it's how you integrate with business partners in our case and really get aligned on the service model. Um, because it's not just a rat race of trying to get people on the phone and off the phone. And it, when you drive first call resolution, you know, at, at a 90 plus percent level, it's okay to spend seven or eight minutes on the phone with somebody. So, so listeners listening right now, how do they work with Capital RX? What's the first steps that they should be taking to engage and understand what you do to help uh, pay better patient care? Yeah. We're out and about. I think obviously go to our website, uh, reach out to us. We engage with everybody all the time, even in venues like this, but elsewhere. Um, you know, it's a big part of growing any business, but especially in healthcare where, you know, collaboration isn't always expected, <laughs> to say yeah. the least, and other things. Um, it's engage. You know, we, we talk to everybody. We cover every market segment at this point. Um, you know, if you're self-insured payers, a lot of that's going to work through broker consultant or other vendor relationships, honestly. Um, and then on the health plan side, more of that tends to skew a bit direct, but there's always stakeholders involved. Um, again, back to the supply chain is complex, and there's a lot of different um, entities that, that get involved appropriately in some of these decisions. Um, and so, uh, again, we're out there. Come, come talk to us, or we're pretty active on social media as well. So, um, you know, have a conversation. I like your social media team. They're always responsive. A shout-out to the social media team of P yeah, Capital absolutely. RX, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, I think you're even on Instagram, but uh, I like the engagement. I like the fact that you're transparent. You answer all the questions that people have in all facets of, of the care uh, cycle. So I appreciate that, Joe. Yeah, look, we're, when you're doing things a little differently, you know what I mean? Some of that's the independence we've got operationally with our own technology. But, you know, look, we are fitting a circle into a square. Mm -hmm. um, and we probably are a little bit of a mouse to the microphone at times. But... Um, you know, we are a mission-driven company. You know, I think there's lots of things anybody can be doing, and I think for us, we value the mission. The mission is to fundamentally change the way people experience prices of drugs and ultimately service around it. And I think that's a not a two-year business plan, yeah. to say the least, right? Um, and so we're well on the way. Well, we have the biggest microphone in the pharmacy profession, so you're welcome to use it anytime you want, <laughs> Joe Alexander, to come back and talk with us. And we appreciate you being part of the post show here at Assembia 2023. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Bobaltz from Onco Health, and you are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You know, one of the most exciting interviews that I have been looking for as part of the Assembia 2023 post show is Dr. Lali Haverin, um, who is from the great city of Pittsburgh. School of Pharmacy is where you went to school. Lolly, welcome to the show. How are you? 
I am doing great. I do have to give you a clarification, though. I went to Pitt undergrad. Pitt undergrad. Hey, School of Pharmacy. It's all Pittsburgh to me. Hail to Pitt. Duquesne University. Go Duquesne University. We love them. We've been there before. We actually did a conference there recently with one of our associates, Kevin Jones, went down and spent time with the P3s that were at Duquesne University doing kind of a question and answer session about the role of the pharmacist, which is why I'm excited you're here. We met at APHA uh, 2022, and it feels like it was years ago. I feel like I've known you forever. But the role of the pharmacist is evolving, and we have to have pharmacists involved in fertility care. And Walgreens has an entire division of oncology and fertility, and you're managing and leading that team. So that's why I was excited that you were here. So talk to us about how did you get that niche? How did you get yourself into fertility specifically? And and tell us a little bit about your background in that. Sure. And I can't believe it's been a year. We've been talking about having this for a year, (laughs) so I'm glad it's finally happening. So sure, I uh, graduated from pharmacy school in 2009, and I moved from Pittsburgh to St. Louis. And after a few years of practice, I actually ended up with fertility issues. And so fertility wasn't something, obviously going to a Catholic pharmacy school was not (laughs) something that was in the curriculum. I knew nothing about it. And I got thrown in as both a patient um, and then later became a pharmacist in fertility. I just felt that having gone through it, I could help patients navigate almost the, the mental health piece of it. I could really counsel because I was going through it in St. Louis at the time. So that's kind of how I fell into fertility. And that was, again, back in 2009. I did it for a couple years, moved out of St. Louis to Las Vegas, actually. I was stationed here for four years. And unfortunately, there was no fertility at the time, so I kind of went away from it. So I continued my career, um, went into specialty pharmacy, always with Walgreens, and about two years ago, got the opportunity to come back into fertility at the support center and lead it from a strategy perspective. And it was really interesting because when I applied for the job, they said, oh, it's fertility and oncology. And I thought, why are they putting those two together? (laughs) And because I went through fertility and just I I didn't have cancer at the time, it didn't really dawn on me that this was a, a, a great, you know, great combination right like that that there were a lot of patients that were going to need both of these services and it really did make a lot of sense and so that's one of the things that I have been focused in the past two years is talking about fertility preservation because if you get diagnosed at an MD Anderson you're getting the fertility preservation conversation we know that and that's great but if you're diagnosed in a rural community cancer center there's a very good chance that you didn't have that conversation that you didn't have that option Or even if you did have the conversation, there may not have been a reproductive endocrinologist in your town that can get you into treatment within days because we last thing we want to do is delay oncology treatment. And so I really feel like we have such an opportunity as pharmacists to educate patients, whether you're in fertility or not, that this is something that you should be having a conversation, especially when you're diagnosed with cancer. Um, Aside from the cancer piece, another piece that we don't talk as pharmacists is as we get older, we know our fertility declines, right? And so a lot of pharmacists are now prescribing birth control. Are we having that conversation with patients about family planning? How long do you want to be on birth control for? Do you know that this could potentially hurt your chances? Let's let's check, let's check some levels. Let's see where you are. So I just really believe in empowering pharmacists on the fertility conversation in general is really where we should be focused on. Molly, that's special. I think of this as three tracks. I think of Walgreens focusing on fertility, focusing on oncology, and then focusing on the combo. 
And those are three different experiences for all three of those patients. And having someone that experienced fertility issues of your own brings a contextual and an empathy that you're speaking from the heart and not just from the pharmacological aspect of it. But combining that is so powerful, which is why I was excited that you were coming today. Yeah, and we're actually coming off of National Infertility Awareness Week, which was last week. And, you know, I got to host a panel and I had people from, you know, fertility preservation stories and single women that are freezing their eggs for the future. And I spoke. And the one thing that I think we can all agree on is they're different versions of the exact same story. We all want to have a family and there's a potential that that may not happen in at least the way that we imagined it. And that's really what I always try to, to focus on is if you want a family, you can have a family. It just may not be the way that you originally anticipated. But even that, you know, my husband and I decided to donate our embryos after we were done. Wow. And the reason that I did it and spoke about it is because no one's talking about it. And that's an option that people have. You know, there could be a woman that really wants to go through pregnancy but isn't able to have her own embryos. Well, now, did, did you know that you could you know, adopt an embryo and do it that way. And so just having those conversations and bringing awareness to it, I think is really important. There's an intimacy to this. There's a sensitivity um, to this whole subject. And if you don't have pharmacists who are able to spend more time with the patient and set them down and slow processes down, there's something that's missing in the healthcare ecosystem that really focuses on getting the next prescription processed rather than saying, hold on a second, these are people, these are humans that have feelings and worry and um, stress that's, uh, that's compounding because stress is such a anti-pregnancy thing. And I understand this from my mom and dad being, and I think I shared this story with you, they were uh, also very, very Catholic. So they taught natural family planning and they really tried to help people, but they had limitations because they didn't have science backgrounds. It was more of a process to follow. And when I think of you as this beacon to, to say, wait a second, it's not as dark as you think. It's not as endless as you think. It's not as dismal as you think. There's going to be an opportunity to really be healthy during this pregnancy, uh, possibly be in cancer care and not have to worry that is there uh, is there an end to this road of, of me reaching a specific level of not only self-care but care for my future baby and, and infant care. And so I think you play a role that I want to see expanded throughout the country. We have 305,000 active plus pharmacists throughout the, wor throughout the United States. How many of those pharmacists are interested in fertility and interested in oncology and or the combination of that? What do you say to those listeners right now that are pharmacists that are like, listen, I have an interest in, in fertility specifically. How would you say that, where should they go to say, hey, I want an opportunity to dig into this, this treatment? Sure. I mean, I think the resources are not as widely available as for oncology, right? You can, there's so many CEs for fertility. It's a little bit less limited. Um, so I think still using websites like even Resolve, which is the biggest national um, infertility advocacy organization, or the Onco Fertility Consortium are really good places for resources. But you bring up a great point about science, what it used to be. You know, when I was going through it, or even when I was single, egg freezing was experimental, so that didn't really seem like a good idea to spend thousands of dollars when it wasn't even pure science. Well, now that's not experimental anymore. So even 
becoming aware of the recent research that is out there and the evidence that's out there that it is no longer experimental, I think is, is a really great place for pharmacists to start. Well, I want to give a shout out to Walgreens for having the insight to fertility to put a lot of time and resource and investment into that division and see that spread with your your footprint, 6,000 plus locations out there. And how many how many sectors of the United States have a quote unquote Walgreens fertility initiative? So in terms of fertility pharmacies, which is what I find it fascinating is most of them, like you know, in specialty pharmacy are mail order. And so you're getting this box of medications with a ton of needles and some are refrigerated and some are compounded and some have needles to draw up and others needles to inject. It is the most confusing thing. And so what I'm really proud of at Walgreens is we have 11 local fertility specialized pharmacies and then we have 50 additional backups throughout the country. And so these are places where if a patient wants to walk in and say, how do I do this? How do I put this needle to what syringe? A pharmacist will walk you through it. And I think that we're the only fertility pharmacy that does that. Everyone else is mail order. And so I think that that's such a great thing for pharmacists across all specialties to be aware of because they may not be well-versed in fertility to know that there's a local Walgreens that can help them with that. So we'd like to work on future projects with you to spread the news about what you've done and what you've specifically done, Dr. Haverin, in this space. And, and I think it's very special. I would like to invite you back and the even the Walgreens team back to go through this. But is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners um, coming out of Assembia 2023? Sure. Um, the last thing I want to say, I know there's a lot of pharmacists listening, and we've talked about this in the conference a lot, and it's really advocating for the patients um, because I think, especially with fertility, these aren't quote-unquote sick patients, right? They're not, they don't have a chronic condition. They're not going to be injecting for months and months. These are patients that got thrown into this, are not expecting it, maybe only have to go through it for a month, but maybe they're going through it for a couple years. And so understanding the landscape so that if you have a patient that's going through this, that they don't have to navigate alone, that you can give them resources, that you can point them to a fertility specialized pharmacy. God forbid you go on, walk into a regular pharmacy, you'd pay thousands of dollars more than you would a fertility pharmacy because that's just how the pricing and the rebates work. And so just understanding that and making sure that you're able to advocate for patients. Dr. Lally Haveran, thank you so much for being here. Um, hope to have you back at maybe the next uh, 2024 SMBA um, back. But before that, like I said, I definitely want to have you back on the network, sharing what you understand and know and encouraging other pharmacists to get involved. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thank, thank you. you.